The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Good to see you back here for the second part of my conversation with Christopher Fong and Stefan Erhardt from the Zuglers, talking about startups, building good, sustainable startups that not only weather crisis, but perhaps even thrive in them. So I hope you're going to give us more input of your comments and your thoughts as you did already about the first part. So thank you for that in advance. Enjoy. We set up a school program which we had 1,400 applicants for, and we got 250 ex-Googlers to volunteer their time to mentor them and to be speakers to them. So right now we're looking to extend the Zoogler School Program to actually help people perhaps to be angel investors and to also help them um, launch funds themselves. Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco-Becali. And just because you mentioned, Chris, you know, the likelihood um, of success of startups before moving on to another big area where investors get more and more involved and potentially remotely. Let me share with you um, a screen share, which I dug up as in the latest report when it comes to um, startups and the likelihood of survival. So according to the U.S. Small Business Administration, it's the survey, the latest survey 2019, is that the failure rate of startup is 90%, full stop. Me, as a business angel, I know that. Um, So (laughs) luckily not yet from my own experiences. They're all hanging in there, my companies, but still. 21.5% fail in the first year, 30 in the second year, 50 uh, in the fifth year, and 7% in the the 10th year. And I have to say that, of course, the definition here, small and startup business, everything below 500 employees. What was kind of surprising to me in this, in this report was that I thought, if I invest into a business that's been around for 10 years, you know, it's going to survive. I mean, you've got the product out there, you've got revenues, you've got a more or less proven team. So my chances or my risk factor is actually diminished by the survival time of whatever business I'm looking at. But it doesn't seem to be the case. Stefan. I fully agree. First of all, the situation in Europe is a slightly different one. The failure rate is not as high as in the US and the rest of the world because I think in Europe the mentality is slightly different. People, before they do their own business, think about it twice. Um, And also in a couple of countries, like in Switzerland, um, there's always some form of financial support around that companies can survive maybe a little bit longer. I would not agree necessarily that a company that's older than 10 years is a lucrative investment because like, there is some need of traction. And if there's no traction, there's like, a more 
uh, difficulty behind it to find an investment, either from angel or also big VCs. Um, and it's maybe also not a good sign when within 10 years, the idea of a startup is not succeeding at a bigger scale. In the US, the mentality I think we really like in, in Europe is like, if you fail, fail fast. In Europe, that's something that unfortunately is not as much lift. Um, but I think it's actually a very great approach because then you can quickly see if something's working out or not and don't waste too much time on something that will never fly. Um, I, I think it's something to also from an investment angle to take into account. If you expect a quick return, um, you might have like better results investing into startups in the US. In Europe specifically, also in the German-speaking countries, um, the exit that you might get, let it be an acquisition or an IPO, will take an average a longer period of time, though the chances that you completely lose your money is percentage-wise uh, lower. Well, I'll add to that in terms of from the investor perspective. For any investors in the crowd looking at whether to invest as an angel investor or not, whether angel investments could go $5,000, 10000 $25,000, $100,000 into each investment directly on the cap table of a startup, or if they go through a syndicate, the Zugla Investment Syndicate accepts as low as $1,000. What I would say and what um, suggestions I would look at is look at investing between 30 to 50 companies over a long period of time. Don't just invest in one company, wait for 10 years and see whether they survive or not. Um, what you want is, in the end of the day, is time value of money to show this is probably the riskiest your investment, but you expect the highest return. So invest in a broad range of startups. In, in, invest in startups you think could succeed over the longer term. But also, Stefan and myself shared a couple of examples where Google ended up buying two companies that we were known of because they knew the people, they knew the teams, and they knew the technology. So whether you invest in ex-Google companies or not, try to figure out what is the exit for them going in. Whether is it an Amazon buying them, is it a Google? Even if it goes to zero, does a company want, want to, to buy them for the technology, the people, uh, the product, the customers? So try to think of those uh, components. But I would say that uh, being an investor, you want to be an optimist of where it could go, but also a realist, realizing you do need to invest in a broad range of startups to potentially make the return you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at it from my perspective, so my own company, yes, I am I'm a business angel, but the partnership I have together with my husband, we are 11 partners, we have a totally different approach to investing. So what you were describing just now, Chris, is really the venture capital kind of approach where you, you spread mm -hmm. your risks, you go with a little bit of money in many, many pots and just hope that uh, one of them will pay for the investment of all of them. Um, if, you, if, it, if you had it, hit it right and perhaps perhaps invested in a unicorn such as Pinterest, for example. But um, what we do is we are looking at scale-up companies because we saw that a lot of young companies hit kind of a... Um, a glass ceiling where they scaling up is very, very difficult. Even if they raise money, they just don't know properly how to allocate it, where to, how to really build a business, sound business, the processes, et cetera, et cetera. So the way we invest, maybe a bit more long-term, we become operational partners. So we do invest cash, but then we kind of build up our, our um, investment in the company through sweat equity, really being with these companies, helping them to establish markets themselves and just spread out and become a successful business. So uh, yes, there you cannot have maybe 50 companies. However, you are very close to your investment. And yes, 
totally pivotal point you just mentioned, Chris, is have a look at the potential exit strategy. Um, because if you see, hey, in my own network, I can flog this company potentially in three to five years very lucratively, that should be in your mind. And I think is what a lot of uh, your investors in your syndicate, as well as just, you know, your investment community has in mind going like, hey, you know, there's trust in the people. They know it's Google guys. They know what the mentality is, the corporate culture. They built a small startup in that culture. So perhaps they will be uh, sold, sold to Google itself. But um, Stefan, let me ask you one thing. And that is, how do you experience the entire remote due diligence process. I mean, we've been buying, uh, you know, we've, we've been buying our last three companies with our, with our company online. We've never met the team. However, the team is so pivotal to success. You need to know the people. How do you find it? How do you, what, what do you hear from, from the ground? Me being an angel investor as well, uh, due diligence is a crucial part before you put some money into a startup. Obviously, later stage it is, the more money we're talking about. And it's interesting to see how the investor landscape reacts to this here in Europe. Um, there are for sure a couple of investors who really suffer from it, specifically the ones that have been very like um, centered around certain like hubs like London, who never invested outside of a startup that's not from London. So the approach that some of the better investors took already before the crisis with COVID is to look at it from a, like a broader European angle. There are great bigger VCs like an Atomico who are already invested before in companies, let's say in Estonia, um, and they've done due diligence upfront, even without meeting the people and uh, know what it takes to, to be successful um, and to have good investments, even when you're not necessarily having a coffee with the founders on a weekly basis. So I, I think it's absolutely doable. And now everyone is kind of forced into this new reality um, and it's working. I, I think it's just a real like a mentality that um, some people prefer to, to see someone in person to build up trust. But I think it's definitely possible also to do remotely. And that could be like endorsement from other people that you really trust. So there is definitely more thoroughly checks needed. And there's generally also more trust in, let's say, Western European companies versus like emerging market companies. Um, but I think it's something that will become even more structured than it used to be. And I think it's something we all have to do anyways. And now we do it even better. I'll just share about the ex-Google community, how we do it, where... I didn't meet a founder based in India, but he participated in the Zuga demo day that two of my colleagues ran in India and in Bangalore. And it's people you trust. And because we trust each other as partners who are there and they're not investment partners, but they help as volunteers of the community, we trusted their ability to assess the market, assess the founders, as well as be able to be helpful to the founders, even though we're not being able to be on the ground. And as a result, so we were able to invest in them. I think it's also our philosophy where we try to invest in only ex-Google founders where we know they've hit that bar. It's a global common bar. That if you got into Google, you have a certain uh, level of whether it's the tenacity, the ability to execute. If you're an engineer in a tech background, I mean, sales, being able to get to the, the right customer. And you're able to do your due diligence uh, based on those few factors where for, in terms of it doesn't matter where you're located, whether you're in Zurich, whether you're in Norway, whether you're in London. It's trusting the, the ability for us to do the due diligence outside. 
And I think it all depends on the type of investment and level of investment you're making. As an angel, you can do that. As a Series B and above company, you can do that. The Series A is a tricky part because Series A is where, and the, the Series A is where you actually have some, you have some numbers where you can assess them, mm-hmm. but you need to really get to know the founders really well to write a large. Check. That's our space. That's our space we're in. It's not. It's not easy. Exactly, Chris. That that is the hardest part. Yep. And I've seen all the Silicon Valley companies have that that trouble of, um, even now where they, the, the the ability to jump through the barrier. They've never met them before. Um, it is hard to actually be the first large check writer. Yeah. And, um, you know, starting to to conclude our conversation, gentlemen, um, Chris, let me ask you, you know, I want to know and I want uh, also our, our viewers to know, what would you say are the three key elements you are, you are looking for and, and also teaching, for example, in Zubler School to potential um, entrepreneurs that are thinking, playing with the idea to setting up their own business? What do you think it takes? Sure. So to give you some background for, for Zoogler School, what we've realized over the past five, six years of running the Zoogler community was ex-Googlers wanted to teach current Googlers or ex-Googlers the knowledge of how to start companies. And we saw the, the ability and the generosity to be helpful from the Zoogler community that we extended it to students. So the student population were not actually ex-Googlers or Googlers, but because we had an intern who was a university student deferring his studies to Cornell University, we set up a school program, which we had 1,400 applicants for, and we got 250 ex-Googlers to volunteer their time to mentor them and to be speakers to them. So right now, we're looking to extend the Zoogler school program to actually help people perhaps to be angel investors and to also help them um, launch funds themselves. What we've seen is the Zoogler school students also write a book and publish on Amazon, so it's available to, to, to search for. Is how to uh, find your tech career. What we've found in terms of assessing founders that we want to invest in is really three things. One is the team. Can they execute? And why are they actually executing in this space? What insight knowledge do they have about our unique insight that this space is underserved or how they're going to execute it differently? The second is the, the market itself, right? Is the market interesting? Whether it's large enough, it needs to at least be a, over a billion dollars in terms of early stage angel investment to make sure can it grow that large. So first of all, it's the team and that market. And I would say the, the product market fit of how they see it. We invest in companies before they even launch, products uh, before they even are built. It's because we can assess people while they're still at Google, what teams they worked on, ask the managers, try to figure out based on the experience, do they have the right fit to execute what they're trying to build? And as a result, try to see whether there's their the assessment and the, and the fit over there. So again, to iterate one last time, it's the team, it's the market they're building it, and the product market fit and the execution they're planning on that. Mm, Stefan, would you like to add to that? Uh, yes. So from a European angle, I think one aspect is really important, the international mindset. Because startups that like focus only, let's say, on one country, Switzerland, they will not scale very far. So like starting early on to think about like how to hire people from other countries, how to like run your operations in different markets where you maybe not always speak the language early on. I think that's really, really important here. And you see it that more and more teams are distributed across different markets. Otherwise in Switzerland, for example, you really hard to, to pay the salaries and hire all the people that you need. It's an absolute must, but everything else that Chris was uh, mentioning, I, I fully agree with as well. Would maybe just add on top of that, what's really important is kind of a business mindset. Have your KPIs really under control? 
and have like at least at some point on the horizon um, some revenue or even profits um, that are upcoming. Or you have a, one of those few success stories where you just create an incredible high user base that you can park the monetization aspect for a while. But these are usually exceptions. Um, I think uh, having revenue early on solves a lot of problems. Yeah, it solves a lot of problems. And um, I may add from my angle, um, I very much look at you know, the discipline, the cash discipline these companies have already displayed right from the beginning. You know, the classical bootstrapping of a company to say, okay, um, we are running our shop for as long as we can, very low cost, and try to even put cash aside. Because what I've been seeing in terms of the reasons why so many companies, uh, even really long-lasting companies, have not survived this pandemic is a bad cash management. And cash is the bloodline of any business at the end of the day. Would you agree? Totally agree. And I think part of it, it's, it's based on the business, but also who they can reach out to. So if there's a final thing I want to add is build your networks early. Yeah, I think yeah. what we've been able to see before you even leave your full-time job, before you even look at embarking on this company, know that, yes, you have your existing investors, but who are the later stage investors that you want to tap into when needed and include them in the investment reports where there's not too much confidential information, but you can just show them how you're executing and share that early because the more supporters you can get earlier on in your company, the more you can go back to them in the future where you need the cash or the introductions or the support that your company needs. Yeah, absolutely. I think networking is fundamental and you cannot do it by yourself. And well, I think the Zuglers are the best example how really networking, bringing different parties together can lead to long lasting success. Um, one more thing, Chris, you mentioned tenacity is one of those things that you look at in the team. And I love that too. And I, I think this is one of the reasons why I got into it is like this incredibly great minds and this enthusiasm and this passion. And they kind of like wheel you over and you're going, like, oh, of course, I invest in you. But one thing is tenacity. And the other thing is to just say, okay, when is the right time to stop? Because at some point, you may be tenacious, you may be pushing, you might be you know, struggling, but you still don't want to give up on the business, on the idea. How do you tell your youngsters this is the way you need to stop or now is the way to stop? It's really to never stop. You get to decide, <laughs> you, you really? get to decide when, 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 when your startup stops. Look, end of the day is your risk profile where the younger you are, the more ability you have to restart and pivot and go a long time without cash and eat ramen, right? Um, but I think part of it is really understanding what is your timeline and why you're doing this startup. Right. Everyone has their own obligations, whether it's debt, whether it's family, whether it's other things they should be working on. But uh, frankly, if you pivot around enough, you hang around enough startup founders and investors, and you are getting the right knowledge, eventually there will be some company that could work. The question is, are you tenacious enough? And do you end up finding that that could work? And it's also whether it's aligned with what you want to build. I'll I'll share my own personal story. I think these are always the, the, the best stories to share. When I left Google, I worked with on-demand companies like Uber, Lyft, food delivery, washing delivery, a lot of delivery type companies. But this is back in 2014 where there was flooding the San Francisco market where everyone's trying to be the next Uber. What I realized was all these companies wanted to hire drivers and delivery people. And on the flip side, they couldn't find enough people. The flip side, you go to any Uber, people would say they can't make enough money. So I left to go and actually build a platform to help 
both sides to help find each other, like a, what a kayak is when we had part of Priceline, where you can actually do an aggregation of work on both sides. It didn't work because there wasn't enough money to share to the, the drivers on one side. So we pivoted to a training facility to train these individuals to actually go and pivot out of their own driving job to other fields. And we were able to get paid, paid $1,000 as a success placement fee for an individual to train to do something else. So, But for me, what has worked is this whole ex-Google community where I was able to start on, on the side, start some events and programming, got more people, whether it's Rune in London, whether it's Stefan in, in Zurich and other people around the world from India to Japan to Singapore to Australia to all across the US to form these ex-Google communities. And as a result, we've been very successful uh, forming a platform to help people meet each other to actually invest in each other and also support their own startup. So again, it's the founder uh, product fit in my case where I wasn't the best person to have to do that startup that I left Google to do. But as a result, I was able to have that uh, tenacity to continue along um, this journey to do that. And it's because of perhaps my own individual background, but also finding and pivoting around what is needed in the marketplace. Mm, and doing a fabulous job of it. Stefan, you've been with Google for over 17 years, uh, if I'm right, from what I've read up on you. And I wonder, what is really the, how would you put the Google mentality, the culture, you know, the big brand that in such short amount of time was built with that trust halo and with this fantastic brand of I'm an ex-Googler, believe in me, invest in me. What would you say are the key points at Google? I think there's a couple of things that are important that connects people when they're on Google. It starts with things like structuring your work around like objectives and key results where you like think about how to plan your work and measure success afterwards. It's something that's been well-known, uh, very much established also in the startup ecosystem, try to have a mindset to structure a bit your goals. Um, it's also within Google, and uh, we have a peer review process that is not so much in love with everyone. And um, it's something that connected people because you ask your colleagues for feedback, what you think about you, which is important, and which is also like a, an absolutely crucial part to like develop people. But in this process, you get in touch with other people and you, you hear not only uh, like the positive things. And uh, I think this form of trust is absolutely important that you can give people feedback even when it's not positive. And I think that's one of the pillars that connects people because you have a kind of a safety net within Google that continues outside of Google with a Zoopla network where you trust the people even when you haven't met them before, but you know they work for Google. Go I'll just add one more thing. It's really the filter that Google has given that allows you to trust people's feedback for your product. And you want that kind of feedback because these people are pretty smart as well. They see things differently than you, but you trust their opinion. And you know they come from a good place where they want to help. There can be a lot of negative people out in the world, but also some positive people who may not have the right answers for you. But again, it's the people you meet inside Google that want to help you and, and criticize in the right way. And some, that's sometimes the hardest thing to do when you're a startup. Everyone wants to tell you how great you're doing. But perhaps ex-Google or Google would say that, look, it's how you're doing could be done better. And this is how you could do it. And they care more than anyone else.
Mm. Last one, because uh, Stefan has a heart out in a couple of minutes to you, Chris. Um, from a global perspective, what are the mega trends you think, especially in the technology side, that is going to that are going to carry over, carry through this pandemic, and really continue to drive the tech innovation? I'll start with the first one, which is very unique, where it's just called community, and we're seeing the Zuga community flourish here. And, We talk about Zoogle and Google this entire conversation, but I do want to encourage all these viewers who may not have any connection to Google or any tech companies to think about your own community you can help organize, pull together, inspire, perhaps get speakers, have a dinner series. There's so many tools such as Substack for email as Clubhouse now is a really hot startup that is actually pulling a lot of interesting people together. What is your startup taking advantage of this big community megatrend where people actually try to invest in these new, new platforms or bring people together? So that's one in terms of community and trying to find ways. Uh, another thing is education, clearly. From tr moving on from community to education, a company that actually overflows on both sides called OnDeck. So OnDeck started with an individual who was the first employee of Product Hunt. And he also has raised his own fund and is very successful. But what he's realized with OnDeck is pe people are looking for new careers and they're not going to do the MBAs or trying to do a master's. They want to find a set of community individuals, do a very quick program and perhaps find the next thing they're trying to do. So education, especially now with the pandemic, a lot of people are studying from home. They need to actually go and catch up on a lot of different things, whether it's online tutoring marketplaces, whether it's platforms people can go study and learn. There's a huge mega trend. And the third one is online ordering. There's so many of our friends, our families, that they would never pick up a phone or even go on the internet to order food or any item. But because of necessity and this push of actually not going to shops and places to buy things, that's a huge trend that will continue. So more online adoption of all these ordering things. So again, plenty of mega trends to talk about, but I would say the community where people are trying to connect with each other, especially since so many people are now working from home. Uh, the, the second, looking at education. And the third is more e-commerce that we're seeing. And uh, if I don't mind, the, the last one I'll mention is trying to figure out where to put your money and invest. We've never talked about fintech at all, this whole conversation, but with quantitative easing that governments are pushing out, I'm seeing great companies being built out where common stock of trying to figure out how to uh, look at community for investing. I'm seeing a crypto uh, type of platform for companies uh, called Falcon X gaining popularity. So that's another mega trend to look at as well. Uh, absolutely. And Chris, I'm going to pick you up on that one. Perhaps we'll do a one-on-one -on -one just on fintech because I think also it's a hot space, the entire DeFi space and uh, the digital assets. I'm totally sold on it. I'm also invested in it. So I think this is one of the mega trends. Apart from also remote diagnostics, I wanted to add to your list just there, Chris, uh, that I'm definitely looking at and following. So I'm going to go back to our gallery view and want to thank both of you gentlemen for your time. Chris, joining us from Sydney. It's evening for you. Uh, Stefan, you're sitting with me in snowy Zurich. The weather is awful. <laughs> But anyway, thank you so much for being with us here on Mentory TV. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Hey.
And thank you, my dear Mentory TV community, for having joined us yet again for an exciting conversation. This time we had a couple of people coming from Google, one still with it. The other one is now the founder and uh, the chief at Zoogler.co. We talked about what does it really take to build a sustainable business? Why do ex-Googlers do actually really well building companies such as Pinterest and Instagram, for example? So I hope you did enjoy our conversation and join us for the next one too. Leave your comments as usual below. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. <laughs>